what have you loved or what do you love other than God? I don't say if because there's been a point for all of us at which we have loved something other than God or we might be loving something other than God right now. The fascinating thing about the passage that we'll look at this morning is that I think it shows the foolishness, even the seeming madness that idolatry produces. And uh, Luke sets this in contrast, I think, to both the assessment of Christianity by the ruling authorities, by the Romans, and in contrast to the ways that the disciples, the apostles themselves behaved. We see the behavior of the crowd, and it seems puzzling, but I think that it is a, a reasonable outcome of their having put their trust in the wrong thing, not in the one true God. So we start out, let's start out in verse 21, just to get a little bit of background. Last time we, we left Ephesus, and the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. We had this outpouring response of people having rejected their magical practices, their attempts to control divine power through sorcery. They had repented, they had turned away from that. The word was growing mightily and prevailing. Then Paul purposed in the spirit, according to God's will, to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's sort of outlining his travel plans. He was going to go through Macedonia and Achaia, and then he was going to go from there to Jerusalem, and then his goal was also to go on to Rome. Now, knowing what we know of what happens later in the book, he does so, but not necessarily perhaps in the exact way that he had planned, and yet I don't think that he was blind to the possibilities of it turning out that he made those trips as a prisoner. And uh, either way, he saw God's will being accomplished. Along the lines of those travel plans, he sends... Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia in preparation for his coming there to sort of prepare the way, encourage the churches, and stayed in Asia for a while. The wording of this disturbance that we see that we read about in our scripture reading this morning, uh, I almost get the sense that Luke is writing this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Why do I say that? There occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. No small disturbance is a description for what essentially is a riot a few verses later. And then no little business, verse 24, is essentially, I think, another way of saying they were raking in the money, right? So why were they so upset? Because what Paul was doing was interfering with their plans. So there's no small disturbance concerning the way. When I first read the book of Acts, I sort of had this idea that this, this phrase, the way... Uh, really only occurred at the very beginning of the book with Paul uh, trying to stamp out followers of the way by persecuting them. But it's interesting that it's actually found several times throughout the book. For example, we saw Aquila and Priscilla instructing um, uh, Apollos in the way of God more accurately. We see in chapter 19 and verse 9 there were people who were speaking evil of the way so again, what is the way? As Jonathan said, the way is following Christ, believing in Jesus, in contrast to either Judaism or various pagan religions. And so there is a disturbance connected with those who believe the truth and are part of the early church. 
This man here is a silversmith making silver shrines of Artemis. These silver shrines most would assume to have been replicas of the temple at Ephesus that people could, if they did not live in Ephesus, could take home with them and use as a part of their religious worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana, depending on if you worshipped her according to uh, which name. Uh, and this selling of these shrines was bringing them a great deal of profit. There was a significant following for this goddess throughout that region particularly. Um, Demetrius certainly exaggerates it a bit when he says the whole world worships her. That's uh, clearly a bit of exaggeration, but she was a well-known goddess. Why was she a popular goddess? Well, much like the uh, Ashtoreth that were condemned in Israel during their history in the Old Testament. She was a goddess seen as one who would bless fertility. Ironically, also a goddess of death and a goddess of the hunt. And so in their minds, she was one that you did not wish to offend with regard to the span of your life and also with regard to the beginning of life. Essentially, the way that these cults operated, these pagan religions operated, if you followed the rituals properly, made the right sacrifices, you would have children, you would have crops, you would have all of these things provided for you. If you offended her, you would lose out on all those things and she might even bring death to you. Uh, and this again, we think that this is a, a, a distant thing, but think back, this was something that was going on in the history of Israel very early on, some thousand years before, and even earlier than that. And it's still going on during the time of the Roman Empire, and Paul is confronting the same sort of idolatry. Interestingly enough, the Jews did not seem to have a problem with the sort of widespread idolatry that they had practiced early in their history after the time of exile. God judged them so severely and so emphatically that they would at least outwardly not practice idolatry. And yet I think uh, with regards to the comments that Demetrius makes about his temple in the temple of Artemis here in this passage, I think that some have said, and I think with good reason, Luke is, I think, trying to stir up the Jews to consider have we approached our own temple in an idolatrous sort of way? Think about the story of Jesus. Jesus says, I will tear this temple down and restore it in three days. What do they immediately think of? Not he himself, but the building. What did they swear by when they wanted God to hear their oaths or when they wanted to get out of their oaths? Things connected with the temple. The Jews had, in some respect, come to idolize the temple even as these pagans idolized their own temple. And so I think Luke is subtly condemning them with this account and pointing out to them some of the similarities between this response to an attack on the temple versus their response to an attack on the temple in Jerusalem. Just like God dealt with their idolatry in the Old Testament by sending them into exile destroying the temple, breaking their power. Very shortly, 
I think God was also going to deal with the idolatry of the Jews regarding the new temple that Herod had built by allowing the Romans to destroy it in AD 70. Again, their idolatry of the temple was not quite to the same degree or in the same way as that of the pagans toward the temple of Artemis, but there are certainly parallels. Demetrius is making shrines. He gathers the craftsmen together. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of various trades. So he starts with the people who are most likely to get worked up over what Paul is doing. You're making silver shrines. You're making this thing connected with the temple. You're making that thing connected with the temple. This threatens all of our business. How does he address them? Well, he's honest with them. Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. If we want to keep making money, we've got to do something about this. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now he starts out being honest about why he's upset. We're losing out on money. He quickly turns to a sort of rhetoric to stir them up and get them behind his cause and get them to go after Paul. Why? What's his concern? His real concern is money, but then he also addresses the religious aspects of it. When he says almost all of Asia, he's talking about probably what it says in chapter 19 and verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's ministry had been going on for long enough that the gospel had spread throughout the region, and people were believing the gospel as evidenced by the fact that they're burning their books of magic. They're repenting. They're following. They're believing. They're joining. For the ones who sold those books of magic, that had to have been very disconcerting to see all that stuff that you had sold people go up in flames. Probably more disconcerting when they stopped buying anymore. No more shrines being bought. No more books of magic being bought. So there's elements of truth to the fear that he's trying to stir up there's also elements of exaggeration. Has Paul single-handedly persuaded and turned away a, a whole bunch of people? Well, obviously it's God's work, not Paul's, but I think he's overstating what Paul had accomplished. Certainly God had done a great work there, but it's not as though every single person had believed. Demetrius didn't believe. All of his co-workers didn't believe. There was a, clearly from what we see of the crowd later in the chapter, there's a whole lot of people who are still very much devoted to the worship of Artemis. So there's an element of exaggeration of what he's saying. Verse 27, this trade of ours fall into disrepute. That was a legitimate concern because if enough people got saved, they would stop buying their shrines. But that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be regarded as worthless didn't seem likely to have happened. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship would be dethroned from her magnificence, this is clearly exaggeration. And so he moves from a genuine point of concern to a, an exaggerated concern. And I think that the reason for this overblown response 
is because of their idolatry. They are worshiping a false goddess. They are bound and determined to protect her at all costs, largely because false gods and goddesses have to be protected at all costs because they can't protect themselves. Verse 26, his objection to what Paul was saying, that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Paul certainly would have said something along these lines, but I think that it's important to note that when we get to the end of the chapter, the official, the ruler, is going to say, they have not specifically gone in and blasphemed or attacked your temple. They may have said things, but them just saying things doesn't mean that you can go after them and, and, and kill them. If you have a problem with them, follow the proper channels of dealing with it. So the first section here of this story is Demetrius is stirring up the crowd on the basis of this exaggerated fear. In contrast, what are we as Christians supposed to fear? We're supposed to fear God. Demetrius's fear was over here because his false goddess couldn't do anything about this threat to his business. In contrast, those who follow the true God are not supposed to fear things out here, but we're supposed to fear God himself. God who actually has the power to hear and to answer our prayers. False goddess who needs help, exaggerated fear, true God who must be feared himself, not the things out here, who actually has the power to hear and to answer prayer. This is the consistent testimony of the scripture with regards to idolatry. False gods can't hear your prayers. False gods can't even defend themselves. Why are you believing in them? We come to verse 28. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, we see, for example, chapter 19 and verse 9. Paul is reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, I don't think that that meant that there was no emotional content attached to what Paul was saying. But on the one hand, you have a calm, reasoned defense of Christianity. On the other hand, you have angry shouting. When the goddess is attacked, she's great! When Jesus is attacked, here's what the Bible says is true about there's no substance to this because there's no argument whatsoever. It's just a, a, a blind assertion. But on this hand, you have reasoned defense of who Jesus is according to the scriptures. What, how does this escalate? Verse 29, the city's filled with confusion. They rush with one accord into the theater, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They get the whole city stirred up over this. They rush into the theater. Now, the theater would have been a large building built into a hillside that would have been, at least by later times, to, able to accommodate something like twenty-five or 30,000 people. So this would have been a, a large area. So it's not implausible that the whole city is rushing to this place to see and to hear what's going on. They seize Paul's companions, probably because they want to extract some sort of confession or repudiation from them or to punish them in some way. Paul himself wants to go into the, into the theater and make a defense. 
and the disciples say, that's really not a good idea right now, Paul. They actually restrain him. Just as a side note, some people speculate, as they often do, looking at books like Acts, that certain sections of the book were not original to the book, but were added later. One point of argument against that is simply, if it was added later, why would you add in a story where Paul is not the main character to a book that, at least in the second half of it, is largely about Paul? So that, in and of itself, is an argument for the fact that this is part of the actual account. They're coming at it from the perspective of, let's find all the ways that this doesn't fit together. We're coming at it from the perspective of, how does this develop the overall theme of the book? We believe that this is, of course, part of the account of Acts. Verse 31, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, of Paul's, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Who are these Asiarchs? They would have been... Uh, political officials of some kind. Some people think that they were responsible for promoting the sort of emperor cult that was coming from Rome at the time. We need to worship the emperor. Which, if so, it would be extremely ironic that they're defending someone who is proclaiming Christ as the one who should be worshipped and served. And yet, Paul had become so well-known in the region and was respected that they were concerned for his safety and seeking to intervene to protect him. This is going to tie in with the theme that we see later at the end of our story this morning. Over and over again, there are accusations brought against Christianity. That it's false, that it's corrupt, that it starts riots. Clearly this story illustrates the problem does not lie with the apostles and those who follow their teaching. That's not the source of these riots, it's rather the response of other people. Verse 32, some shouted one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they had come together. There's a riot going on. Nobody knows why it's happening, but since all these other people are out in the streets, they all come out in the streets. And so it's sort of built and built and built from the craftsmen and the workers and Demetrius to a larger group of people who knew what was going on to now it's so big the whole city is turning out in confusion, and no one's quite sure what's going on. Verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. The question is, who is this Alexander? It seems that since the Jews put him forward, probably their goal was to put one of their own number forward and say, we have nothing to do with this, we need to calm down and disperse the riot. But what's their response to him? When they recognized that he was a Jew, and thus perhaps associated with Paul, another Jew, they wanted nothing to hear of what he was saying. And a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Again, Paul's reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, preaching with authority, but not uncontrollably or, or with rage or with uh, confusion. Their response when they perceive a threat to their goddess, let's shout for two hours and start a riot. I think that that is a marker of idolatry. When you stop worshiping the one true God, you begin to fear things that you shouldn't fear. Think about Romans 1. You start to worship creatures and other created things. You fear and are concerned about all of these things over here because your gods are powerless. You behave irrationally and irresponsibly. 
you know one thing to be true, but you deny that that thing is true, and you come to believe things that don't make any sense at all, as evidenced by their response to this situation. They just have this uncontrollable rage and, and fervor and shouting for two hours. Again, if Luke is drawing a parallel to the improper respect that the Jews had to their temple and to their rejection of Christ, what did the Jews shout when Jesus was before them? Release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. I think that Luke is not only condemning pagan idolatry, I think he is also making some comments about Jewish idolatry or parallels in the way that they had behaved toward Christ. Again, not in a, not in a hateful sort of way or anything like that, but just pointing out the fact when you worship the wrong thing, this is the sort of result that takes place. Verse 35, now we come to the response of the official. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Everybody knows that this is where the temple is. Everybody knows that this is a well-known object of worship, a place to stop, something that is notable in the region. What's proof of this? We even have a, an image which fell down from heaven. Image might not be the best word. Most likely they're probably describing some kind of meteorite that they believe to be a divine sign that they would have collected from the point of impact and taken to the temple. Uh, much like other religions have done similar things with objects that fell from the sky that in, in turn became idols. So he starts out trying to calm them down by saying, you guys are right, everybody knows what's going on here. You don't need to fear that you're going to be forgotten in a moment. Verse 36, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. So since we know that Artemis is great and this is the site of her temple, why are you behaving in such a irrational fashion? Verse 37, you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. They haven't gone into your temple and stolen anything from you. Your accusation is that they've taken something from you. They haven't taken it from your temple. They also haven't gone in and done some sort of act that would desecrate or defile the temple. Uh, there's a parallel in, um, in history of when someone wish to defile the Jewish temple, they went into the temple, one of the conquerors offered a pig on the altar to defile it. They haven't done anything like that, right? What have they done? They've said, here's the God that they worship. But they haven't gone in and directly attacked physically anything of yours. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available let them bring charges against one another. When you have a civil matter that you feel like someone has cheated you out of profit, take it to the court and deal with it the proper way. Or, if that's not sufficient for you, verse 39, if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. So they would have regular court sessions, and then they would also have periodic sort of town meetings in which issues could be resolved. Those are the two legitimate options for dealing with your complaint. 
What's his concern? Verse 40. Indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's event, since there is no cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. So go back to verse uh, 25 through 27. Remember what Demetrius said? Demetrius said he's sort of stirring up fear. Paul. Fear Paul. What's the official saying here at the end of the chapter? Fear Rome, because if they come crack down on us, we're all in trouble. So Demetrius is saying the problem is Paul. The Roman official is saying, no, the problem is all of you are starting a riot over something that should be dealt with in a much different way. What does this conclude then about Luke's assessment and the Romans' assessment of Christianity? This is one of the purposes that I think Luke is trying to accomplish in this book. Christianity was legitimate. It was not violent in the way that people accuse it of being. It was not the source of riots and disturbances the way that people accuse them of being. What do we see over and over again in the book of Acts? Other groups, not the early church, behaving in disorderly ways behaving with a sort of madness, behaving with lack of control, making false accusations, stirring up trouble. Paul goes and preaches what happens. There's this dedicated band of Jews that follows him around and tries to get him kicked out of every synagogue that he goes to. Paul comes and preaches in Ephesus. What happens? These craftsmen start a riot. So which one is the reasonable and believable and, and, and uh, faith to be followed based on the way that the people who follow it act. And which one is the one that clearly shows that there's an element of being irrational and irresponsible and full of fear and anger and all of these sorts of things? Paganism or Judaism when it's stirred up ironically to oppose what's true in defense of something that they had come to revere too much. So I think the main point of this passage is that theme that Christianity is law-abiding and reasonable and believable. But I think that a very important theme under that is the corruption and the strange results of idolatry in terms of words and actions. If you worship a false god, you will respond with disproportionate fear when that false god is attacked. Why? Because it can't do anything to defend itself. Somebody comes after your wallet. Somebody comes after your person that you have put up as like the epitome of what you want to be or follow. Someone comes after some idea that you have come to love and appreciate. Whatever it is that is not God, that someone does something that seems to threaten it, there is this fear that that will be discredited or taken away or brought to nothing. That's what Demetrius and his companions are saying. Not only that, there's fear, but there's also this anger. 
You can't say that about that. Not, here's a good reason to believe this thing or to follow this thing. Because when we love something that's not God, do we have a good reason to do that? No. Think about what Paul says in Romans. When you serve sin, sin was a terrible master. It promised you all these things. It gave you suffering and death. Does that make sense? Don't worship what will destroy you. And yet if you worship it, you get angry about it, not on the basis of any good reason, but simply because the thing that you love has been attacked. Now, is there an element of righteous anger when the name of God is mocked? Yes. But there's a difference between righteous anger when God is mocked and an irrational, pointless anger that just stands and shouts for two hours in the marketplace. Do you see the difference? Idolatry leads to foolishness. So what things do we worship that aren't God? You say, I don't worship anything that's not God. Okay. Do you demonstrate an unreasonable fear and an inexplicable anger when something happens that you don't like that interferes with your plans and your purposes and that thing has become more important to you potentially than God? So if you say, I, I only worship God, if you find yourself acting in the way that this crowd acted, what is it that you're acting that way about? What is it that you're fearing can be taken away from you? What is it that you're responding with this strange kind of anger when someone says something against it or does something against it or, or interferes with it in some way? That may be the thing that you are worshiping or loving more than God. And whether you're a Jew or a pagan or a Christian, we cannot put things before God. Obviously, uh, Luke is not saying that it's okay to be any one of those three. He's simply saying idolatry is foolishness regardless of where it crops up. So who do you worship? We think that we should fear this. The craftsman feared Paul and his influence. The Roman official feared Rome and their judgment. Who are we supposed to fear? We're supposed to fear God. And I think Luke is making that point. Fear God, because what happens as a result of this? Nothing happens to Paul. God uses this official to disperse the crowd and protect Paul and the other believers, and all of their rage and all of their fear and all of their rioting comes to nothing because God did not permit it to go beyond this point. So who should you fear? Not this person, not this ruling authority. Fear God. So don't worship idols that are terrible masters and lead you to do stupid things. Worship God who created you in his image, intends for you to live in good works according to his plan, and who gives you the strength to prevail over even the anger of a mob. Hebrews says that some people did not survive such instances. There were those who were martyred for the faith. 
Did that mean that their faith in God wasn't real? No, it just meant that God had a different plan for the outcome of their lives. Whether your outcome is from the trial, through the trial, from the trial to be in God's presence, you still belong to God. God's power is great. God's purpose goes forward. Don't worship idols. Worship God. Let's pray. Lord, there is strong pressure on us from every corner to worship things that are no gods at all. We make money, we build things, we uh, become attracted to different ideas or different people or different movements and we think that they are the thing that we ought to follow and devote our lives to. Anything that is not following you is foolish leads to destruction and causes us to lead a miserable life. Lord, help us to see that. We can be blind to it many times, Lord. Help us to examine our hearts and say, what are things that cause me to fear for no apparent reason or to uh, respond with this extreme sort of anger when something seems to oppose it? Perhaps these are things that we are loving more than you. Lord, we see that you vindicate those who trust in you, that you defend those who believe in you, that your power prevails, the gospel continues to go forward, and that angry mobs or corrupt officials or whatever else, none of those things can stop your purpose from going forward. Lord, I pray that that would give us hope, that that would give us confidence to keep following you, realizing that you've already won the victory. It is up to us to continue to fight the battle until the victory is, is fully declared across every border and in every place. Lord, sometimes we stop fighting the battle in our own hearts. Help us not to think that the problem lies outside of us. Certainly we can be influenced by things around us. Certainly we can be affected by what we watch and hear and see and, and participate in, but the real enemy, largely speaking, is within us, and that is where we must do battle. Help us to see where we love something or someone or some group of things more than you. Help us to set that aside. Lord, you haven't foretold judgment on us like you have on the Israelites with the destruction of their temple in the Old Testament or the looming destruction of their temple in the New with the conquest of various pagan nations by other nations. We don't have a specific revelation that indicates that for us, but if you have behaved that way in the past, we ought to expect that you might well do so again. Because if we are your people, you are a jealous God and you will not tolerate us loving other things. So help us to deal with our sins, Lord, before you deal with them. Because as it says in another place, to fall into the hands of the living God is a terrible and a fearful thing. And if judgment is going to sweep over the whole world, it ought to begin at the household of God. Let us examine ourselves and follow you wholeheartedly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.